Part twenty one of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Paul Four, the Prince of Poets. Footnote The new anthology of Paul Four's poems, Choix de Ballade Francaise, Figuier, Six Francs may be recommended to intending readers whom our poet's prolific output might otherwise bewilder and repel in it paul four has for the first time properly classified his work End footnote. philomel footnote philomel is included in this volume by arrangement with mr martin secker End footnote. from the french of paul four o sing in heart of silence hiding near thou whom the roses bend their heads to hear in silence down the moonlight slides her wing will no rose breathe while philomel doth sing no breath and deeper yet the perfume grows the voice of philomel can slay a rose the song of philomel on nights serene implores the gods who roam in shades unseen but never calls the roses whose perfume deepens and deepens as they wait their doom is it not silence whose great bosom heaves listen a rose tree drops her quiet leaves now silence flashes lightning like a storm now silence is a cloud and cradled warm by risings and by fallings of the tune that philomel doth sing as shines the moon a bird's or some immortal voice from hell there is no breath to die with philomel and yet the world has changed without a breath the moon lies heavy on the rose's death and every rose-bush droops its leafy crown a gust of roses has gone sweeping down the panic garden drives her leaves about the moon is masked it flares and flickers out o oh, shivering petals on your lawn of fear turn down to earth and hear what you shall hear a beat a beat a beat beneath the ground and hurrying beats and one great beat profound a heart is coming close i have heard pass the noise of a great heart upon the grass the petals reel earth opens from beneath the ashen roses on their lawn of death raising her peaceful brow the grand and pale demeter listens to the nightingale what a large contribution french literature of the last ten years has made to the splendid unity achieved by france in face of the great but long foreseen danger of war how firmly that reaction to heroic ideals of discipline and religion has been led by men like barres and mouras is hardly realized in england at all where the press choked with articles on unimportant and obscure curiosities like strindberg or tagore has no time to attend to the one foreign literature worth reading footnote mr e goss who wrote a charming criticism of paul four some years ago has lately given a crushing opinion on strindberg in the first number of the new weekly flecker's note End footnote indeed the only modern french writer known in england is anatole france imagined a solitary star in a waste of night it cannot be pretended that paul four has been a direct leader of this renovating movement in france 
Indeed, it would be vain to expect the poet to take the didactic lead. A poet should teach discipline by the severity of his verse, courage by the strength of his line, honour by the scrupulous sincerity of his achievement. But that is merely to say a poet should be a good poet. Paul Four gives us more than this. He gives us the new spirit of France, that brave common sense that bursts out in gaiety and imagination, and gives the impression that though the world is deadly serious, it is still disreputably young. The possibility of the creation of poetry like this may be said to mark a revolution in the French mentality. A few years ago, French critics did really and honestly consider that literature and civilization had reached their last stage of cynical corruption. But of late, the whole youth of France seems to have been recaptured by the old ideals of the peasant, the soldier, the priest, and though neither militarist nor clerical, Paul Four yet has all the irrepressible hopefulness of the young generation that drives on the soldiers of France in charge after charge against their monstrous enemy. For him, a few mechanical inventions or scientific improvements have not spoilt the sunrise, and accepting the civilization of today as Homer accepted that of three thousand years ago, he celebrates simply, but with startling novelty of inspiration, the scenery and actors of that once so pleasant stage, the France he lives in. The Prince of Poets is no futurist, though Marinetti has bidden his followers admire him. He writes no odes on aeroplanes or automobiles. He does not lay a particular stress on the mechanical side of modern life, being too fond of his contemporaries to insult them by considering them less interesting than machines. The minor poets of the futurist school, in their struggle to escape those trammels of the centuries which oppress all timorous minds, adopt any childish eccentricity of metre, language or subject that comes into their heads. At the same time, they impose upon themselves a harder law than any academy ever yet invented for the suppression of that free play which is so necessary for the expansion of genius. They are not allowed by their leaders to write a line except in derision about the past. Paul Four has described the past as well as the present, but when, as often, he deals with modern life, he has courage enough to envisage it in its proper relation to the past, and genius enough to reveal its fascination without distorting its reality. He is only able to do this because he has dug down to the bedrock of human nature, because he understands the good old basic things of life, the soil, the sun, the rain, the labour, sorrows and songs of the people. He can himself actually write folk songs, a unique achievement for a great literary artist. Folk songs that seem as if they must be traditional, must have been composed hundreds of years ago. When one thinks of the evolution of French poetry during the last few generations, with its imposing array of schools, romantics, Parnassians, symbolists, unanimists and the rest, one realises what superb detachment is required, not to mention other and higher qualities, for a Frenchman and a Parisian to write a poem as finely unadorned as this. Si toutes les filles du monde voulaient se donner la main, tout autour de la mer, elles pourraient faire une ronde. Si tous les gars du monde voulaient bien être marins, ils feraient avec le barque un joli pont sur l'onde. Alors, 
on pourrait faire une ronde autour du monde si tous les gens du monde voulaient se donner la main. It is natural that a poet so much haunted by the peasant should have sought inspiration for medieval France. Paul Faure's longest work, Le Roman de Louis XI, is a fantasy half in verse, half in prose, remarkably close in feeling and in style to Rabelais. The hero is presented with humour and sympathy, for the king, who had nothing but a shrewd wit to save his impoverished kingdom from the menace of the bellicose, parading, pompous Duke of Burgundy, is a man after the author's heart. French critics have quoted as a masterpiece of pathos the little scene in which Louis discovers that his son Joachim is dead. But the most memorable passage in the book is the hilarious description of the siege of Beauvais, with its catalogue of the missiles, beginning with paving stones and ending with complete houses, which the besieged dropped with gorgeously noisy effects onto the heads of the besiegers. It must have been this passage that awoke in Marinetti an admiration for Paul Faure, for granted that realising in poetry the effect of a tremendous noise be a futurist ideal, Paul Faure has certainly beaten Marinetti on his own ground. The latter's Battle of Tripoli is very thin piping compared with the Siege of Beauvais. Yet neither the excellent Louis Ange nor that ambitious poem sequence L'Aventure et Tunnel is the real achievement of Paul Faure. It is by his lyrics that he will be remembered, lyrics so numerous, so brilliant and so diverse that even briefly to discuss their leading characteristics is rather a bewildering task. However, of these characteristics, the most obvious and pervading one beyond any doubt is humour, humour of the great lyrical quality which can remind us at times of Heine, of Cervantes, of Browning, and as will be hereafter observed, most specially of Shakespeare, yet a humour which combines with an impudence almost English, a lightness entirely French. Les baleines, du tombe qu'on allait encore aux baleines, si loin que ça faisait matelot pleurer Nobel, il y avait sous charoute un Jésus sans croix, il y avait des marquis convers de dentelle, il y avait la Sainte Vierge et il y avait le roi. Du tombe qu'on allait encore aux baleines, si loin que ça faisait matelot pleurer Nobel, il y avait des marins qui avaient la foi et des grands seigneurs qui crachaient sur elle, il y avait la Sainte Vierge et il y avait le roi. Eh bien à présent, tout le monde est content. C'est pas pour dire matelot, mais on est content. Il y a plus de grands seigneurs ni de Jésus qui tiennent. Il y a la République et il y a le président. Et il y a plus de baleines. A still more extravagant poem called The One-Eyed Cat recalls nothing written in the French language except the poem en prose of Baudelaire. La femme est hors l'homme est à la guillain, et la petite maison est seule tout le jour. Seule, mais à travers les persiennes vertes, on voit luire dans l'ombre comme une goutte de mer. Quand le bagne est à l'homme, la mère est à la femme, et la petite maison au chatbon tout le jour. Among scores of poems in this vein, the reader may be specially referred to Le Marchand de Sable, La Reine à la Mer, Le Paysan et Son âme, perhaps the most amusing of all, and to one unaccountably excluded from the anthology, 
Le Petit Roi du Nord. Similar in humorous treatment, but more subtle, are some of the poems on Shakespearean characters to which Englishmen will turn with special interest. Hamlet begins thus. Hamlet, que la folie des autres importunes a fait le tour du monde, mais dans le clair de lune, il retrouve Elsinore qu'il n'avait pas quitté. Hamlet a fait le tour du monde, comme il fait tout, on pensait. Still more exquisitely subtle is Seigneur Fortinbras. Moi que l'on attendait, j'entre en disant ma phrase. Je viens clore le drame avec un clarin d'or, tout seul, car mon immense armée ne viendra pas. Que voulez-vous Je l'ai perdu dans le décor ombreux de la coulisse. Enfin, taratata the genius of all this is near enough to the pathetic and paul four is as clever as verlaine or de bonvie in catching what may be called the pierre mood the dead clown is rather an obvious subject charmingly treated the song of the little valet who hanged himself is as delicately mysterious as a lyric by mr yeats his masterpiece of humorous pathos is the complaint of the little white horse who worked so bravely on in a country of black rain where there was never any spring. Il est mort sans voir le beau temps, qu'il avait donc du courage. Paul Four has more ambitious flights than these, but his humour seldom deserts him. Indeed, it often breaks out in unexpected places with the most startling effect. His poem marin and ballads of modern Paris have plenty of laughter in their realism. The Poème Marin needs special attention as being perhaps the most powerful volume the poet has produced. They are ballad poems of modern life, somewhat in the tradition handed down from Béranger to Richepin and the singers of Montmartre. But Paul Four's sailors, sentimental, coarse, amusing, passionate, put Richepin's tedious gueux out of court. They hate everyone who is not washed clean by the sea farmers, beggars, priests, soldiers, or poppenaxed Parisians, and above all, says one of them, tu me dégoûtes, ma garce. It is not gallant, but French mariners are a privileged race and know it. Je ne suis pas marine, mais il n'y a que les marins, cries a young mountain lass in her sailor's arms. Excellent, too, is the young fisherman who complains to his mother that he loves three girls at once, and they will not understand. But there are savage and bitter poems in the book, and the description of the drunkard who kills his wife is terrible enough for a Russian novel. Ne gueule pas comme ça. Le ciel n'est pas solide. Il tourne comme un fou. Le bon Dieu s'est soulé. Qui sait ça, tais-toi. Bois ton rhum salé. Eh bien, quoi T'es morte. Tiens, tu n'as plus de rides. Ma petite chérie, ma petite chérie, t'es morte. Moi, je suis saoul. Le bon Dieu pâte la crème. Toutes les étoiles tournent. Il y a des loupes dans l'eau, quand de l'eau pleine le gueule. T'auras pas ma paye. A striking contrast to this realistic work is afforded by the poems which he has in this anthology called Hymne, Heroic Odes in Praise of Nature. They are powerful in expression and grand in conception, but one of them, a poem called Le Dauphin, 
is so passionately inspired as to make the magnificence and brilliance of the other hymns seem almost frozen in comparison swinburne himself has no better song on the joy of swimming and the enchantment of the sea the chase of the dolphins as a swimmer turns with the wheel of the sun among the waves the seaweed and the flying fish is not so much described as seen and heard in the sparkling splashing verses while in the vision of the sea's floor the poem assumes a note of grandeur one of the rarest notes of paul four's brilliant lyre je vois la petite mort est entrée dans mon cœur j'ai revu tous ces monts soulevés de douleur en eux la mer contente sa destinée sauvage elle fuit la terre elle s'accoupe l'eau lave et s'émence le sang de toute sa vigueur et mille bouches de feu bavent des coquillages volcans brûlez la mer des feux de votre cœur les étincelles vives oh que de poissons nagent les étincelles meurent et c'est là votre ouvrage vous attirez les morts qui vont en vous reprendre la chaleur et la vie oh cendre 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 étincelle et déjà vos rochers sont couverts de coraux de varèches d'épais ombrages verts de crabes fourmillons et de ces belles pieuvres envahissant la mer de leurs bras amoureux les hippocampes noires s'échappent de vos feux la bleue holothurie scintille c'est votre œuvre le baliment s'étoile à l'exemple des cieux qu'un jour tout cela meurt vous attendez les cendres la mer bouvant la mort devient phosphorescente vous l'aspirez vos feux déjà se renouvellent et les oiseaux marins volent jusqu'au soleil the hymne lead us naturally to the poems dealing with classical subjects grouped in the new anthology as hymne héroïque églogue and chant panique these lyrics are hardly the most characteristic work of the author whose sympathies are medieval rather than greek paul four sings of jason of hercules of orpheus simply because he loves all delightful tales not because he has a special appreciation of the classical world but he is at his best when he deals with morpheus with the nymphs and fauns with all those suggestive whispering little gods who have haunted christian europe far more tenaciously than the white olympians one of these pictures is unforgettable the old fawn clumsily dancing round the frozen lake trying to reawaken the old magic voices which have abandoned the forest for ever yet though we hold these classical poems to be a mere side issue of paul four's genius what great poems they really are le voyage de jason au fait les nereides with what freshness does the poet attack the age-worn themes with what humour does he charm olympus it is surely with these poems moreover that we should class the most beautiful lyric paul four has ever written the haunting philomel footnote a verse translation of philomel precedes this article End of footnote. english readers who study for themselves the poem marin will be bound to remark the extraordinary almost pagan innocence of their author which seems to enable him to deal with any subject under the sun without prudery and without licentiousness certainly 
Paul Four never feels himself obliged, like so many modern English writers, to adopt a tone of fictitious manliness to palliate anything which a very timorous curate might find shocking, and he is no less innocent when he deals with the externals of religion. Coxcomb, half poem, half story, is a masterpiece of merry humour, blasphemous only as Benozzo Gozzoli blasphemes, when he turns the laughing girls and boys of Florence into saints, angels and virgins. To the truly and deeply religious mind, far more dangerous than this quaint irreverence, is the utilising of the aesthetic beauty of Christianity to decorate poems that are not quite sincere, a moral fault from which our author is not entirely free, and in which our own pre-Raphaelites revelled. Footnote. Yet what rings false in these thrilling lines from the plus du chant? Mais, oh, le chant que j'aime, il me faut l'air câlin, plus nonchalant et triste dont Marie enchanta lui au petit Christ, et qui siffle si doux, Joseph, le menuisier, qu'il fit naître à ce chant, le rêve de l'enfant. Oh, les plus frêles sons! Le suprême chant qui répétait Jésus au ciel de Bethléem, et que les Syriens, éveillant les citars, murmuraient, si penchant au ciel de leur fontaine. End of footnote. To discover the real religion or philosophy of Paul Four, we must turn to one of his later poems, Vivre en Dieu, a work more interesting in thought than happy as poetry in which he has made a direct but still amusing attempt to state and arrange his views on God and the world. The divine function, according to the poet, is to dream, for dream or imagination is a creative force. There is no creative dream in stone, but everything that is alive has a certain power of vision, and is therefore God. L'herbe est un dieu hâtif, dué de rêve ayant une âme visionnaire, Trees are gods, men are gods, but there are degrees. The poet, who above other men possesses the faculty of creative imagination, is the greatest god on earth. All lives dream each other into existence. No other explanation of the universe, adds the writer, with his accustomed laugh. Messieurs, levez votre chapeau. This conception of the universe is more arresting at least than the admired Wordsworthian pantheism but it is neither particularly new nor important, taken purely as philosophy. It possesses, nevertheless, both personal interest and poetical force, being very well adapted to provide a logical background to the inexhaustible gaiety and lovableness of the poet's disposition. There is always something religious in Paul Four's attitude to nature. His whole work is bathed in spiritual sunshine, and when he is closest to tragedy, the consolation he evokes wears the traditional Christian raiment. Do not believe in death. Here are the birds who have flown out of their cages, which were the dark and silent woods. Shed no more vain tears. Heaven is singing like your soul, is dumb no longer, and here is radiant death. And here is luminous and tuneful death, and here is life. Here is the pearl of your soul that an angel of that calm world is threading, and here the radiant music of the archangel's song. A vast section of Paul Four's work 
is devoted to delightful poems in which the country towns and villages near paris are described with incomparable charm and sentiment the poet wanders from reclos from velizy from Morserf, whose sweet name reminds him of fairies dancing round a sleeping knight to nemours pure nemours silver seal on france's noblest page or great lily of the isle is not thy destiny white town soul of a sky like pearl to school in elegance the proud world itself to la fête des millions where seven distinct houses claim to be the birthplace of racine like the seven islands which disputed homer and to a hundred little towns beside and we have their history their legends the girl at the window the ducks in the pond the ghosts in the castle the auction in the town hall all set forth in a whirl of humour or sentiment but there is pathos now in the exquisite poems on senlis which recently as a result of special and atrocious barbarity on the part of the germans has been irretrievably destroyed notre dame and all senlis matinal je sors la ville a-t-elle disparu ce matin où s'est-elle envolée par quel vent dans quelle île je la retrouve mais n'ose plus étendre les mains senlis est vaporeuse comme une mousseline moi déchiré senlis prenons garde où est-elle toi et moi sont un transparent réseau de brume notre dame livre à l'air sa gorge de dentelle son cou si fin son sein léger couleur de lune où battent leur irréel que seuls comptent les anges tant l'écho s'entouffe dans l'oreiller du ciel fait des plumes doucement étendues de l'oreille où dieu repose un front qui vers son lit se penche alas senlis is torn and the tower of notre dame will shine in the morning mist no longer it is for the glory of france that these poems were written and such passionate patriotism is almost too personal a thing to be discussed by the foreign critic one would naturally conclude that paul four considering the great patriotic reaction would be at least as popular in france were it on the score of this section of his work alone as say mr macefield in england one could well imagine such a national direct simple and humorous poet holding a position in his lifetime somewhat similar to that which carducci used to hold in italy yet paul four and this would appear to be a very curious fact of literary history however much he may be the idol of the young literary circles who this year elected him prince of poets however numerous and enthusiastic may be the articles on his work which appear from time to time in the literary reviews is hardly more known to the general public than was the classicist moria or to take an english example that fine poet mr de la mer moreover the reason for this comparative neglect for these second and third editions of work which one would expect to sell by the ten thousand cannot possibly be that paul four stands in any way apart from his time nationalism regionalism medievalism the love of country and the soil have been the very breath of the gospel of maurice Barres and of a thousand lesser pens and are enormously in fashion again while paul four is perhaps hardly like Berez, a catholic yet he has an unshaken belief in the catholic virtues 
and a sure insight into Catholic ideals. The antipathy, almost hatred, of the Parisian mind for humour may have something to do with the neglect of Paul Fort. Humour to many Frenchmen is a gross extravagance, and they are all a little apt to take poetry too seriously. Yet there is plenty of good work in Paul Fort which is not humorous, and one is driven to the only conclusion possible, queer as it may sound to English readers, that the chief reason of this comparative neglect is to be found in our poet's metrical peculiarities. As will have been seen by the extracts given in French, Paul Fort has abandoned the general practice of writing out poetry line by line, and writes it out verse by verse instead. He also has a habit of letting his poetry degenerate either into a prose with internal rhymes, similar to that oriental prose of which the curious can find a horrible parody in Beaconsfield's Alroy, or, as often in the longer poems, into pure prose. In addition to this, our poet frequently disregards the rule that the final E mute counts as a syllable for poetic purposes. This is a license frequently used in popular poetry and songs, but Paul Ford does not take the trouble to mark the suppression of the sham syllable in the regular way by omitting the E mute and substituting an apostrophe. Indeed, the effect, if he did so, would be very ugly and tiring. These innovations do not seem to an English student very terrible, and indeed about half of Paul Ford's poetry could perfectly well be printed out in lines and be read as popular poetry, and no one would any more dream of cavilling at it as a breach of tradition than at Richepin's Il y avait une fois un pauvre gas qui aimait celle qui ne l'aimait pas. Besides, it might be observed, there is nothing very revolutionary in the printing of verse as prose. It might even be called, on the contrary, a return to the old tradition, for a monkish scribe copying Virgil would go to greater lengths than our author in jumbling up the lines would, in fact, jumble up the very words. This is not to say, however, that Paul Four's practice in this respect is perfectly reasonable and wise. The greatest enthusiast for his work must admit that in the longer poems it is often very puzzling to know, without careful scrutiny, whether the poet has any rhythmical intentions or not. It is also invariably difficult to discover the words which are intended to rhyme, it is at least doubtful whether the halfway house and quick transition from verse into prose at which the author says he aims by his peculiar typography would not be better served by simply printing verse as verse and prose as prose. The only real advantage about the system, as far as one can see, is that the reader is imperceptibly led to read the lines more rapidly, and that the licenses taken, which include, besides those already mentioned, the occasional use of very vague assonance in the place of rhyme, look less alarming. Footnote. Assonance is frequently used by Francis Jean and even by the classical Henri de Regnier. End of footnote. Certainly the innovation attracted attention and discussion to the poet's early work, but unfortunately, as years went on, critics continued to discuss the metre instead of the poetry, and the French, with their passion for order and tradition, are still very worried about this comparatively trifling aspect of a great achievement, so that for many Frenchmen even today, Paul Four is the poet who writes in prose, and is unjustly confounded with a thousand maudlin writers of amateurish prose poems.
I believe that if he were to publish his shorter lyrics, printed in the old established way, they would be received with immense enthusiasm, not only by a literary clique, but by the whole French nation. The ranking of poets is a tedious and rather childish pastime, which many critics at once deride and enjoy. Yet there is somehow an undoubted pleasure in constructing a hierarchy in picturing modern French poetry to oneself as being led by two great chiefs, Henri de Rognier and Paul Four, two men of genius, strikingly dissimilar to each other, and only alike in towering above all possible rivals of the present day. Unfortunately, this is no very high compliment, for if we count Verheeren as a Belgian, and even he seems to write steadily worse year by year, there is very little left in modern French poetry, since the untimely deaths of Saman and Morias, which calls for more than respect, outside the work of these two men of genius. Exception must be made in favour of the delicate and charming spirit of Francis Cham, but a more interesting and more legitimate part of the critic's task is the study of affinity. In criticising this author, one is apt to make endless comparisons with the great writers, and especially with the great humorists of the past. But strangely enough, it is Shakespeare himself who more than any other writer, living or dead, is recalled by the work of Paul Four. In this assertion, of course, no comparison of value is implied. The tragic and sublime are not regions into which Paul Four has entered. It is to the Shakespeare of the Midsummer Night's Dream, not to the Shakespeare of Macbeth, that our Frenchman has affinity. But the affinity is very striking, nevertheless. There is something deep in the nature of both poets that positively coincides. Is it, perhaps, their exuberance that makes them kin, their bravado air of looking at the world, their delight in nature, not as a pantheistic manifestation, but as a delightful and complicated toy? Is it the absence of all bitterness from their godlike laughter, an absence of bitterness not due, as in the work of our modern English cartoonists, to a mawkish desire to hurt nobody's feelings, but to an innate loftiness of soul? One cannot say exactly, but I think that many English readers of Paul Fort will admit that had Shakespeare been born a Frenchman of today, he would have written, at least when in comic or lyrical mood, work closely resembling this. One might even add that Shakespeare handles his classical subject in Venus and Adonis, much as Paul Four has handled Les Nereides. And as if to clinch our argument, what insight do the little poems, some of them already quoted, on Hamlet, Ophelia, Lear, show into even the tragic Shakespeare? Few French poets ought to be so profoundly appreciated by English readers. End of part 21 End of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker